bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome everyone, I'm Paul Dragu. We're glad you can join us. Migrant crime is ravaging the country and some Democrat leaders are trying to carefully backtrack on their inane sanctuary city status. Also, Fannie Willis's equally corrupt colleagues are now closing ranks to keep her from being kicked off the Trump case in Georgia. We're going to be talking about those stories. And in a little bit, John Burr Society researcher Peter Rykowski joins us to make a case for why we should defund most of the government. This is going to be great. But first, Donald Trump won the Michigan primary that was held last night. He has now swept all of the first five primary races. He beat Nikki Haley, his only remaining primary opponent, by a staggering margin of more than 40 points. Haley hasn't come close to winning, not even in New Hampshire, where tons of Democrats came out to vote for her. Despite primary voters making clear who they want as a president, the former South Carolina governor said she'll stay in the race until Super Tuesday. She has money to keep going. In January, her campaign committee outraised Trump's by $3 million. The reason she's still in the race, as the AP put it, is in case Trump's legal problems imperil his chances of becoming the nominee. No surprise there. Meanwhile, the Trump train keeps barreling down the track with no electoral signs of slowing down. On Saturday at CPAC, he gave an hour and a half speech in which he described the kind of revenge he'll take if he becomes president. Listen. Your victory will be our ultimate vindication. Your liberty will be our ultimate reward. And the unprecedented success of the United States of America will be my ultimate and absolute revenge. That's what I want. Success will be our revenge. Joining me to discuss today's stories is editor-in-chief of the New American Magazine, Gary Benoit, and executive senior editor, Steve Bonta. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. So Trump just keeps going. Um... I got to say, this is the best version of Trump that I think I've seen. I have limited exposure, but I got to see Trump on Saturday at CPAC. And um, that was the first time I've seen him in maybe like six years. I saw him back in Montana a few times when I was uh, covering him as, as a reporter. And I noticed some differences and some, uh, some, a lot of similarities, too. Now, for those who have been to a Trump rally... I think they can all agree that the atmosphere at a Trump rally is unlike any political uh, rally. I, I talked to other reporters, even at CPAC on Saturday, and, and they all kind of say the same thing. This is not a normal political figure. Uh, the rallies are, they have this mixture of rock concert and, you know, populist figure and whatnot. There's a lot of anticipation. Uh, folks, um, folks are there for Trump. And CPAC was a Trump event. I think if the media got anything close to right on that. It is that that was the case. This was, I haven't been to CPAC before, but my understanding is this was really just a MAGA event. And uh, I noticed that there was a wide range of people there from all sorts of ages to all sorts of backgrounds. And if that's reflective of the Trump movement or the MAGA movement, I think we're, uh, we're in good shape. And it seems that it could be, I mean, yesterday, uh, Newsweek put out this, uh, this thing here says Gen Z loves Donald Trump more than any other age group. And I got to say, I saw a lot of people between 20 and 35 there. And we even interviewed some. We played that uh, that interview uh, of me talking to those kids from the University of Georgia. But there is a difference, I noticed. And again, I have limited exposure. But based on what I saw back in 2018 and the Trump that I saw uh, Saturday, 
I think he's become better in the sense that he's more humane. He seemed more humane, congenial, and he was funny. And he told these stories. And uh, one of the stories he told about was how he smashed ISIS. And he talked about how he had learned from the people on the ground that it would only take four weeks and not four years. And the people on the ground there, the brass told them that the reason for that they say it would take four years is because they do not allow the military to do their job uh, to the best of their might and potential. So Trump allowed him to do that. They crushed ISIS. And he, he said intentionally, and, and this is how you know, the guy is there. He's in, he, he has these communication skills and he was terrific. He said, the reason I'm telling you these stories is because it perfectly illustrates that our leaders restrict the might and potential of the United States. He said they restrict us militarily. They restrict us when it comes to energy. We have an energy sector that's just waiting to explode to, to, uh, to benefit the American people. They restrict our police officers when it comes to arresting these criminals. Uh, they restrict our border, uh, border patrol. And um, this, I think, this is a Trump that I think is unbeatable. Uh, you have reality which is a country in bad shape. And then you have this wide coalition of people of all backgrounds who are on the Trump train. What do you guys, uh, what do you guys make of Trump's staggering one last uh, win last night and, uh, and where this movement is going? And is there anything that can stop him besides from jail? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean obviously that's the big caveat, but I, I think the, the, the appeal of Trump, as, as with a number of these, these other populist leaders like Millet in Argentina that are emerging around the world, is first and foremost his authenticity. And this is becoming a new thing with the rising generation, this expectation that leaders not only be competent, but that they be authentic. I think this may have to do in large measure with the new openness and intimacy associated with the internet. Mm. The idea that, you know, because the internet, a lot of the most popular are, are not scripted. It's people doing stupid things, you know, this kind of thing. And so there's this, there's this ex expectation less of theatricality and and choreography which you had in the age of television you know people had to have a certain had to look a certain way and had to conduct themselves according to very carefully prescribed rules that were that were typical of the age of t where television and movies yeah. were like the dominant now you have this this much more spontaneous medium which has taken over politics and it's and, not and, polished and it. scripted yeah and, and and that's Trump's world even though he's you know he's an older man than any of us he 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 understands this and 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 so and people sense that well yeah he's kind of a dingbat in some ways he can be he can be crass mm -hmm. but he is authentic and believable which is certainly not the case with um, with any of his Republican competitors yeah. well even his yeah. insults I, he's toned it down that's because that was one of the things I never liked and that was one of the yeah. reasons I was always on the fence about Trump was his insults they were so searing and and you know and they were childish and and even juvenile and frat boyish and I gotta say I didn't see a whole lot of that at CPAC I don't remember one instance I mean he did make fun of Biden but the way he did it was funny you know he's like notice how he always points and he doesn't know where the stairs are it's stuff you know it, it wasn't uh, it it wasn't as bad as he's been. Uh, so I'm wondering if also all this persecution has humbled the man because he does seem different. And this is from someone, again, who has not seen him live in six years. I can tell there's a difference. What, what, what are your thoughts on this, Gary? Well, of course, I, I have not actually seen Trump live. So I have to go by the videos I've seen and, and what people say who go to Trump rallies. But uh, uh, it's certainly my sense that he comes across in a way that is unique or, or at least different from other politicians. 
And I would say that's refreshing to uh, a lot of people. But regarding CPAC in general, one thing I want to point to, Paul, uh, would be two of the college kids you interviewed, and I was able to see that that interview. Uh, I was very, very impressed with those kids. And I was impressed because they had more than a surface knowledge. Uh, uh, they were talking about the, the fact uh, they were going through a religious conversion. Uh, uh, when I, I believe uh, uh, regarding Protestantism, uh, the other was converting to uh, Catholicism. Uh, but they uh, were doing uh, a lot of study. And, and uh, one of them said he read the, the law by Frederick Bastier, the 19th century mm -hmm. uh, French statesman, and how impressed he was with that and how that helped uh, encourage him to do further study. And uh, you know, tapes that he was able to find online at YouTube and was able to watch for free. And and they're actually lamenting the fact that other people are not doing reading and yeah. uh, that people who do not do the study, uh, they, they really cannot get beyond the, the sound bites. But the fact that these two young people in an age where supposedly we're told that people do not read, that these two young people are reading, they are researching, and uh, they're getting involved in the freedom fight and they're, they're working to make a difference, uh, was very heartwarming to me. It was very encouraging. Yes, I I ran into those uh, those those kids. I call them. I probably shouldn't. Those those young men. Uh, the first day of CPAC, and I was actually still in my traveling clothes, and I had my UGA hat on, and they noticed, and that's when we started talking. And then later on, I decided, you know what? I'd like to talk to these kids, and imagine if we could get more kids like that. And that's what they're working toward. They're practically birching. I mean, the, the, the law is a book that we offer at Shop JBS and, and, and their, their approach is exactly what we encourage. Read, learn, educate yourself, and then educate others. Thank you, gentlemen. After this, the death of a Georgia college student is another reminder that we don't need illegal migrants in this country. In 1988, the John Birch Society produced a documentary so predictive, it's as though they had a time machine. Out of Control, Immigration Invasion was produced and hosted by investigative reporter William F. Jasper and looks at the growing problem of unrestricted illegal immigration that, in 1988, already saw upwards of 10 to 20 million illegal aliens within the borders of the U.S. Unknown agents from around the world using the southern border as easy entry. Certainly, some are innocent families escaping hardship, but also certainly some are criminals, potentially terrorists. Is it not appropriate that there be some criteria for the entry of any sovereign nation? Why should the U.S. be different than Canada, Germany, Russia, Japan, or every other country on the planet? Out of control, immigration invasion. Watch this time capsule of prescient wisdom at thenewamerican.com slash outofcontrol. The New American has just released our latest bookazine, a collection of articles on self-reliance. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and without the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. In this Polish Collector's Edition, we have articles on a number of important topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, building a wood shack, and the importance of community, among many other topics. Now, the authors of the articles are experts in their fields. We encourage you to get a copy. You can order your copy at thenewamerican.com forward slash shop, or you can call our office at 800-727-8783. However you do it, make sure you get your copy of Self-Reliance, The Foundation of Freedom. Lakin Riley was a nursing student at the Augusta University campus in Athens, Georgia, 
until she went jogging and never came back. Her body was found later in the day in the coroner says she died from a blunt force to the head. The force was so strong that it disfigured her skull. The police have charged 26-year-old Jose Ibarra, a Venezuelan illegal, with murdering Riley. Ibarra didn't slip into the country undetected. According to officials, he was arrested by U.S. Customs and Border Protection on September 8, 2022, near the border city of El Paso, Texas, after his unlawful entry. But Border Patrol released him back into the country pending a review of his immigration case, according to ICE. Also, according to ICE, Ibarra was arrested late last August in New York City, where he was charged with acting in a manner to injure a child. But he was released, and the New York Police Department says it has no record of arresting him. Riley's murder has added fuel to the dumpster fire that is the result of Biden's open border policies. Migrant crime has become such a huge problem that even the mayor of New York City, a sanctuary city, is trying to change the absurd sanctuary city laws. Here's Adams talking about that. Those small numbers that are committing crimes, we need to modify the, uh, the sanctuary city law that if you commit a felony, a violent act, we should be able to turn you over to ICE and have you deported. It is a right to live in this city and you should be, you should be not committing crimes in our city for doing so. Right now, we don't have the authority to do so. So that's Mayor Eric Adams of New York City doubling down yesterday, calling to change New York City's sanctuary laws. The mayor admits migrant crime has become a big issue in his city, but he says the law does not allow criminals to be reported to ICE for deportation. Would have come in handy a few times. All right, gentlemen. So here again, we have another case of reality versus uh, virtue signaling and and uh, nice uh, platitudes that uh, unfortunately are destructive. Steve, you and I had an interesting conversation yesterday and you don't feel so bad for those people of New York and, and other sanctuary cities. Not even a little bit. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I mean, this, this is, this is obviously very karmic, but, but it, it, I find the irony just, just rich here because what's actually happening. I mean, these big cities like New York mentioned in the video, of course, are controlled by, 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 by certain minority groups, particularly blacks and Hispanics, that they sort of regard that as, as, as their personal fiefdom, mm. politically speaking, right? They expect to be in charge of, uh, of the politics. And what they're realizing now, however, how, however belatedly, is that all of these new, the, these new migrants that are coming in illegally, including some that are Hispanics and some that are from, you know, from sub-Saharan Africa mm. and Asia and all the other places, these people are now grabbing a piece of the political pie. I, I'm, I'm not sure that you know, the, the rise in criminality is so much of an issue. As as the fact because you know I mean, New York is already hopelessly crime ridden in many areas. The, no, the real issue is that they're coming in and they're now commanding a large part of the city resources that used yeah. to be allocated to these various special interest groups, mm -hmm. mostly rep, you know, embodied by these various minorities. So now you know money that might have gone yeah. into into shoring up uh, projects in ethnic neighborhoods or whatever is being shelled out to house illegals take care of Leo's, put them in school and so forth and so on. So now they're getting angry about it. Yeah, yeah. They're uh, they're seeing that what we were warning about is, is true. Clearly, you can't have... A lot of these people are have been released from like insane asylums and, and prisons and whatnot. And this is just one of many examples. I think uh, it was a couple of weeks back, uh, there was some sort of like scam that the migrants in New York were running where they ripped off like 62 cell phones out of purses, women's purses, and the whole... 
the scheme was that they, they, they would then uh, log into their Apple Pay. They would empty their bank accounts or whatever. Then they send the phones off somewhere else to be sold and whatnot. And that is just one of many. And that kind of, from the, from the immigration advocates, they're like, well, you know, migrants don't commit anywhere near as much uh, crime as the native-born population. Like, what kind of a point is that? Like, yeah, we clearly already have problems. Why invite more? Well, and then that's a problem, too, because you're inviting in competitors for our native-born criminal syndicates. <laughs> I mean, you can't have that. The, you know, the, var the, var the various gangs and so forth that already control the likes of New York yeah. and L.A. and Philadelphia are now having these newcomers encroaching on their turf. And there are, unfortunately for them, only so many 7-Elevens that you can rob blind, only, only so many department stores that you can ransack with impunity. Mm. So, you know, what's a criminal going to do? Yeah. Gary, I see you have there the articles of impeachment against Mayorkas. Yes, they do. Um, what kind of crime? Because obviously Mayor, Mayorkas, by the way, is obviously the DHS secretary. He's he's supposedly the mastermind or at least one of the masterminds behind this this crazy open border policy. What is he being charged of? Because I'm not sure we ever we ever dived into it. But because I said something yesterday about I was like, man. This guy is a criminal, and you're like, well, yeah, that's what he's being charged with. So, so what are some of those charges specifically? Do you know? Well, there are two articles of impeachment, and the first one uh, has as a uh, kind of a subtitle: "Willful and Systemic Refusal to Comply with the Law." Yeah, and uh, let's focus on that one because it does not have to do with ineptitude, it does not have to do with uh, stupidity or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But he is willfully, yes, and consciously breaking the law. And uh, there's uh, just many examples of that in these articles of impeachment. And I would encourage people to do what we have done, which is to go to the internet and to, uh, to uh, just up. do a search for the articles of impeachment uh, with Mayorkas and to print it out and to uh, read it. But uh, I'll just read one small part here. It says that Mayorkas has repeatedly violated laws enacted by Congress regarding immigration and border security, in large part because of his unlawful conduct Millions of aliens illegally entered the United States on an annual basis with many unlawfully remaining in the United States. Uh, and, of course, one of those uh, uh, illegal immigrants or illegal migrants uh, is the person from Venezuela uh, who was released. He actually was caught after yes. crossing the border, but he was released. And, uh, uh, and of course, now he's accused of, of killing this uh this young lady at the uh, university in Athens, Georgia. Yeah, and uh, other other migrants are those who attack the police officer in New York City. I, I just want to point out, guys, that like attracts like. What this article of impeachment basically says is that Mayorkas himself is a repeat offender. So small surprise mm -hmm. that he should similarly he he should want kindred spirits to come into the United States by any means possible. Well, what do you guys think of the fact that some say this wouldn't come to light if? Governor Abbott in Texas wouldn't be busing all these folks to places like New York, Chicago, and Denver. Well, that, that, that is a factor. And obviously, I mean, the, the, the original expectation was that they would simply be lodged in, the, in, 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 in red Texas. cities like Dallas and Houston. Mm -hmm. Maybe not San Antonio because it's safely blue in Austin. Yeah, but so you know, put Austin. them in the red cities by all means. Let them take care of them. Yeah. And um, turns out the red cities and the red state of Texas weren't willing to shoulder that burden. So, yeah. yeah. I, I think it was, it, it was a good move. It was an unfortunate because I think one of the things that perhaps the media is right about is in the way they are being used as pawns, but they were being used as pawns before. They were going to be used as pawns to change Texas from a red state to a blue state. That and, was, and Florida. 
In Florida, yeah. And so, uh, it, it, again, they're, they're projecting because they too are using them. And Abbott just basically said, okay, put your money where your mouth is then. We're going we're gonna to send all these folks to you since you're so, so such a virtuous place. And we're going to see, Steve, if New Yorkers and Chicagoans and, and whoever else and Bostonians finally see the light. You don't have a whole lot of <laughs> No, no, they, they won't see the light. I mean, and they'll get upset, they'll sputter and fume, and they'll say it's all the Republicans' fault for not acquiescing to our agenda. Yes, yeah, for, for, for sending these people here. If only they would have kept them yeah, in they Texas. Were, I mean, people in D.C. are, you know, these, these D.C. you know Beltway insiders are constantly getting carjacked outside their own homes, and they don't see the light. So well, what are the chances that people I, I in Manhattan are going to do. see it? You have to look at the individual. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. And we'll see what the numbers are come election time. Thanks, guys. Next up, Fonnie Willis's comrades may have lied on the stand to keep her case against Trump alive. Hey, America. How tired are you of mainstream corporate media's biased narratives and manipulated news? Their dishonesty and attempts to influence this generation have been exposed put on display for anyone who's even half paying attention. But the New American Magazine has been an honest source of news and commentary for over 50 years. This is your opportunity to receive the stalwart of principled journalism at a deep discount. Picture a beautifully published magazine arriving at your doorstep twice a month, packed with insightful stories written with integrity. It's also available digitally on the New American's mobile app. Get up to speed with intelligent coverage from a freedom perspective. Right now, for a limited time, The New American is available to radio listeners at a 25% discount on a new subscription. Visit thenewamerican.com slash radio25 and receive 25% off. Subscribe today at thenewamerican.com slash radio25. For more news and in-depth analysis from The New American Magazine, the kind that you will not get anywhere else, make sure you have a subscription to our twice-monthly print edition of the magazine. No other magazine has been as accurate and for as long about where policy and culture were heading than The New American. You can subscribe online at thenewamerican.com. Just hit the magazine tab on top, and then on the drop-down, hit the subscribe button. Or, if you prefer, you can call for a subscription. Call one 800 727 8783 Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 Central Time. That's 800 727 8783. Fani Willis's corrupt colleagues are now closing ranks to prevent her from being thrown off the Trump case. Much of the anti Trump lawfare now rests on Willis's Georgia case, where the 45th president is accused of trying to overturn the 2020 election result in the state. The Georgia case is the only one that can't be overturned by a presidential pardon. But this case is also hanging by a thread thanks to allegations that Ms. Fani was having an affair with her lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade, before filing the anti-Trump case. Yesterday, lawyers for Trump co-defendant Michael Roman interrogated Nathan Wade's former law partner, Terrence Bradley, about Bradley's claim that the Willis-Wade affair began before Wade was hired as Fani's special prosecutor. Cell phone, re uh, cell phone records appear to support that Wade made multiple overnight visits to Willis's house well before he was hired as a special prosecutor in the Trump case. Yet once it became clear that Bradley was going to be asked to testify against his former partner, Bradley began to backtrack and cover up. He insisted that attorney-client privilege protected him from having to give evidence. Yesterday, he invoked memory loss. He said that he couldn't remember when the affair began and that what he had originally claimed was speculative. Take a listen. Is it your testimony that you don't know 
under oath whether or not there was a relationship between Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis before the contract? I do not recall any dates of when the con of when the relationship started. So whether you are pinpointing a date of when his contract started or not, I'm telling you I did not recall any specific date that he flat out said anything about a relationship with Ms. Willis. When you on your own gave those two statements in the text that you were merely speculating and did not have that knowledge from Mr. Wade. Is that your testimony under oath? Yes, that's what I testified to. Yes, sir. So you on your own came up with the whole notion that it started when she left the DA's office and was judged in South Fulton. That's, according to you, that's speculation on your part, correct? Overruled. That's the question, Mr. Brown. Yes, that's that's speculation on my part. Yes. All right, Steve. So you've been watching this pretty closely, based on that. As closely as I can stomach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you what do you make of this? I mean, it sure looks like uh, you know the guy first says that they were, and now he's like, oh, I don't remember. It sure smells like a cover up, doesn't it? Well, I would say it's comical, but it's just funny. And you know, you look at this whole thing. You like that, Gary? Originally. Huh? <laughs> well, thank you. I don't do I don't do that the same thing twice. But anyway, um, so so what we see is 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 originally, apparently this 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 latest character in this tragic comedy, yeah. admitted to Roman's lawyer that oh yeah no I, I, I they definitely were having an affair well before mm. he was appointed. I remember this clearly. He he said there's a text to that effect. Yeah, but now they're realizing oh my goodness. He could unravel the whole thing. She, yeah, it, this whole thing might just fall apart, and so they're clearly closing ranks ar around it. You know, because they, because the you know this is the only one of all the lawfare cases against Trump where the the prospect of a presidential pardon is off the books, and frankly, the prospect of a gubernatorial pardon because of the structuring of of Georgia's state laws that severely restrict the pardon power on the part of uh, of Georgia's governor who happens to be a Republican, although he's no big fan of Trump, is also restricted. So if they're going to put him in jail and throw away the key, this is their best chance to do so. I mean, clearly... You don't think the hush money cases? Well, no. We, we, That's because, a, is that a civil case? Well, these other cases, they can be appealed to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be overturned. Oh, know, Trump could... Yes. Conceivably, pardon himself if he gets elected to office, but that's not the case with the Georgia case. So th this is probably their best. You know, from the beginning, this was touted as the most serious case. Mm. Uh, of course, the, the 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 official line was it because the evidence is so bad in Georgia. But the real reason is that they carefully they plotted out their course and realized Georgia's the best venue, as opposed to say Michigan or Pennsylvania or other states where the Trump team also attempted to quote unquote overthrow overturn the election results. Georgia, because of its laws and because of the uniquely corrupt situation in Fulton County, as we're now discovering, uh, is is the place, is the venue, is really the hill where the anti-Trumpers are going to are going to die on. And they've they've realized this belatedly. They cannot allow this to continue. So now 
they're falling back on the argument that, well, yes, okay, the cell phone records clearly show that he was, you know, many times spent the night within a, I don't know, a hundred yard radius of Fannie Willis's house yeah. way back in 2020 or wherever it was. I don't, I don't know all the niceties of the, the time. Before the whole thing started. But before, before, they before he case. was hired, I mean, the evidence yeah. is very clear. There are colleagues that have also said, oh, yes, they were having an affair. Yes. We knew about this and so on and so on. So now they're saying, oh, but, but there's no true proof. And in fact, you know, the, the, the latest line in the establishment media is to say, well, yes, but, but there's no real proof, obviously holding the Georgia people to a much higher standard than they ever held Trump back in the Russian collusion, collusion hoax days. Right, right. So, and, and when you say, I don't you know, know, in court, that can't be viewed it's, as perjury sure. because, you know, how are you going to prove that? I, I, don't, I don't know. And I have memory of the two old chestnuts that they use yeah. inside and outside the beltway when you're All when you're time. guilty, you know it, but you don't want to be to, to yeah. be nailed down. It's no coincidence that Anthony Fauci in his deposition a few weeks back said the same thing. Apparently, he just didn't remember. He's now he's, he's just got mush for a brain and he doesn't remember anything during that time, just like this guy doesn't remember anything. What do you think of all this, Gary? Well, there is a record, though. Uh, we're talking about the cell phone rec records. Uh, mm -hmm. There's also messaging. Yeah. Uh, you would think records. that's enough. Uh, so uh, one would think that that would be sufficient. Yeah. And for people who are following this uh, closely, um, I, I would think it's it's proof positive uh, that they're lying. Well, but this, and the problem is this judge used to be Fonnie Willis's subordinate. He's clearly terrified of her. That was obvious to anyone who watched the proceedings last week where she lectured and hectored him and threatened people. And, you know, didn't behave at all like a witness, but she behaved like the person who's in charge of proceedings. Yeah. You know, you or I try that when we're in the, when we're in the courtroom, you know, see, banding see words of counsel, you know, talking over the judge. It doesn't work out so well, but it did for her. So I'm not at all confident, even though he's supposedly going to issue a decision by the end of the week, what to do, that he's going to do anything about it. What what's what the uh, who's gonna the the judge is gonna issue the, ju the judge that's presiding yeah the, the the young guy that was that was and I can say young guy now McAfee yeah yeah, yeah. McAfee. so he but he used but see Fonnie Willis used to be his boss yeah he used to be one of his her stable of prosecutors what decision so. decision is he gonna is it, is the decision gonna be uh, whether or not to to remove Fonnie from the case or is it gonna be to throw the case out completely or do we not know that it could be both or one or the other. We don't know. I, I did see one legal expert from Georgia on a sympathetic network, actually, Fox News, I think last night was saying, you know, the word down there is that she probably will get f removed from the case, but the case itself will not be dismissed. It's going to continue, and but with, with, with a different team. So this, this, this Georgia thing is far from being over, so say those who ought to know. Yeah. I mean, when Trump brought it up in, uh, on Saturday at CPAC, he seemed to be pretty optimistic. But, you know, that's kind of his style anyway, because he's like, we're doing very well there. And so you never know. So it's I don't know. It's irrepressible. Well, let, <laughs> yeah. let's assume this, though. <clears throat> let, let's assume that uh, Trump is actually convicted of trying to steal the election and sends the jail in Georgia. Does that necessarily mean he cannot become president of the United States? There's nothing in the Constitution preventing that. Well, that's what the, our legal scholar Joe Wolverton told us uh, a few weeks back or months, uh, because I had the same question. And I think a lot. The Spectator did something interesting on what would it look like if um, if you jail Trump, and they looked at uh, the, at presidents from other countries who've been jailed, who apparently mm -hmm. we've jailed. They looked at po uh, uh, other political figures in this country who've been jailed. And what that looks like. So nobody really has an idea of what it would be like to jail a president because that's obviously never happened. He has secret service. They're going to need to be around him. It's like, how do you do that? Uh, some say he might just, you know, be on house arrest or whatever. So we'll see what happens. We'll be watching this. And I know, Steve, you will be especially. 
After this, JBS researcher Peter Rykowski joins us to discuss the best way to solve America's deficit problem. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence proclaims God-given rights, and we intend to protect them. Working with people like you for over 50 years, preserving freedom and building a better tomorrow, safeguarding the Constitution by limiting government power. We are restoring liberties, educating voters, and leading the freedom movement. Join with us. United, we will defend our rights. We are all Americans. We are the John Birch Society. Part of the federal government's current funding is scheduled to run out on March 1st, and congressional leaders are racing to come to a new agreement. John Birch Society researcher Peter Rykowski joins me to discuss the negotiations in Congress and why we should defund most of the government. I like that. I like that, Peter. Let's let's get to that. But first, tell us where the negotiations are. I know that uh, I guess Democrats are trying to ensure that we get Ukraine funding and Republicans are saying nothing or are they until the border is secure because Republicans have been really squishy on that. Where are we on the negotiations? Right. So as you mentioned, funding is scheduled to expire for part of the federal government on Friday. Uh, and that includes uh, the Departments of Agriculture, Veterans Affairs, Transportation, Housing and Urban Development, Energy, and a few others. And then next week, the following week on March 8th, funding for the Departments of Defense, Justice, Labor, Health and Human Services, that'll run out then. Mm. So it's a two-tiered bill that they agreed on uh, back in, in November January. where the funding runs out at different points in time. Uh, so now, as you mentioned, they're trying to negotiate Originally, they wanted to have an agreement uh, this past weekend, but they didn't meet that that deadline. So now they're racing to uh, come to some type of agreement. Whenever whenever funding is set to expire, leaders in Congress treat it as the end of the world, and you know, oh, we need to have funding uh, yeah. you know, right now. The country's gonna combust right right when it runs out if we don't. Yeah, yeah. There was apparently uh, Schumer said yesterday that there were talks and. And uh, the reports were there were intense talks. I guess they could hear them through the walls and whatnot. Uh, do you know where anything about that and where we are on that? They had a meeting at the White House yesterday, mm. and Schumer and Joe Biden, they want, as you mentioned, if aid for Ukraine, aid for Israel and other countries, so about $100 billion total in foreign aid, along with a full government spending omnibus bill. Uh, and so that's what they want, either that or a two-week uh, continuing appropriations bill, they'll just kick the can down the road. Uh, meanwhile, conservatives, you know, the Freedom Caucus types, they want a one-year continuing resolution uh, bill, uh, basically as the least bad of bad options, because if a permanent budget is not agreed to by, I think, mid-April, then federal spending will automatically decrease by 1% under an amendment that Thomas Massey mm. actually got passed. So as I mentioned, you know, least bad of bad options. Yeah. So right now, so that that is what the Freedom Caucus, the more conservative um, members of Congress, are advocating for. And as and they they do want uh, the border to be prioritized as opposed to 
sending yeah. sixty billion dollars to Ukraine. What what does prioritize mean? Because there's it seems like there's two factions within that faction, and one is. Uh, you know, they have bills that they've proposed, for instance, H.R. 2. We've discussed it uh, earlier a few weeks back. And then there are others who are saying Biden already has all the power that he needs to uh, to seal the border because it was his executive orders that in, undid a lot of Trump era uh, policies that brought this about. So um, are they what do Republicans want? They want more money. They want more border agents or they are they saying just implement the policies that were already in place when you came into office and that'll be enough. The most conservative Republicans are advocating for H.R. 2. I mean, that that is a very strong bill that would basically prevent the Biden administration from mm. imposing these policies. Uh, Biden could do a lot himself under the current yeah. laws that Congress has. But that's the problem with what has happened over the last 80 or plus years where Congress has passed very vague laws that basically allow the president to yeah. do whatever he wants. So Biden could sign a bunch of executive orders um, making the situation better, but then he could the next day sign a bunch of executive orders just reverting back to yeah. how it is right now. So H.R. 2 would actually mandate uh, good pro-American mm. immigration policies as, as opposed to allowing the president to yeah. basically do whatever he wants on immigration. Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, what we could do to rein in this deficit, because this is a position that I think it's only us who, who, who holds it. And that is that we could defund and should defund 80 percent of the government. Gary, you've been near, has this always been our position or has it been yes. for a long time? Uh, it's been for a, a very long time because we've had uh, the unconstitutional spending for a very long time. But of course we can't do it overnight. Uh, part of the unconstitutional spending, for example, would include Medicare, would include Medicaid, uh, uh, would include uh, Social Security. And yeah. uh, obviously that spending would have to be uh, uh, phased out over many years. And I believe the way to approach that would be to not put young people who are entering the workforce into the system, mm. uh, but to to pay, you know, to continue paying the Social Security uh, for those who are already uh, uh, receiving it. Uh, and, and so it'd be many years to phase it out. But there are other things that could be done uh, immediately. How about empire building, for for example? Uh, obviously, we need defense. We, we need military defense for... Uh, for the protection of the United States of America, but we do not need to spend uh, one dime to uh, uh, empire build throughout the rest of the world. Foreign so aid, that kind of uh, foreign aid uh, should be stopped immediately. Even to uh, Israel? Uh, yes, even to Israel, but also even to Israel's uh, enemies, uh, especially I would say to Israel's enemies. And uh, uh, and let's uh, and without uh, the foreign aid going to Israel, uh, we would no longer have that to use as a club to try to get the state of Israel to do what we want Israel to do. We would actually treat uh, Israel uh, as the great nation that it is instead of trying to treat it as a puppet of the United yeah, States yeah. of America. We would treat it as an autonomous country. Right. Exactly. What, what else What else would we be looking at phasing out there, Peter? Well, the vast majority of the things that Congress spends on, the short answer, <laughs> is, uh, is, is unconstitutional. I mean, if we look at the U.S. Constitution, specifically Article 1, Section 8, it makes very clear the powers that Congress actually does have. And, you know, there's nothing in Article 1, Section 8 about, you know, for example, agriculture, health, transportation, 
uh, foreign aid, labor, and a whole lot of other things that Congress spends billions and even trillions of dollars on. Yeah. Uh, so that could um, and should be cut. And, uh, you know, if we, if, if we look back at the statements of the founding fathers, like, for example, James Madison in uh, Federalist Number 45, um, you know, he, he, he made it very clear the powers of the federal government are few and defined. That's, that's what he said. And now over the uh, past many decades, yeah. uh, especially but not exclusively you know, during the New Deal era, we completely abandoned. They become many and undefined, those powers. Right. And they uh, basically said we can do anything. Yeah. And that, that, that's really the position of Congress right now. Even many Republicans, they, they, they'll look at any issue and think, hey, you know, mm -hmm. we, we ought to uh, legislate on these matters when in reality, the Constitution doesn't actually give Congress any authority over yeah. that. So if if we actually followed the Constitution and only spent money on things that Congress actually had authority to spend money on and legislate on, uh, federal spending would be cut by over uh, 80%. Yes, I'd, I'd imagine, based on what I'm hearing here, is that Congress is not just going to willy-nilly do this. So it's going to start, where's it going to start, Gary? It's going to start on, on the grassroots level, right? Yes, well, People are going to have to It, it starts this. in your locality. It starts in your congressional district. It starts in your state. And on the, the federal level, uh, Congress is the legislative branch of government. That's far more important than the executive branch. So on that level, uh, let's get a good congressman. Uh, and that can be done by informing the people in your congressional district to, to create the necessary understanding. But also, let's not forget the importance of the states either and the importance of uh, state officials, including the governor and the state legislators and so forth. All of them take an oath to the Constitution as well. And in order for them to be honoring the Constitution, what that entails is that when the, when the federal government oversteps its proper authority, that state officials say, no, that unconstitutional usurpation is null and void within our state. I would also add that state and local officials need to stop accepting federal funds. Mm. Yes. Yes. That's a tough one. I'd imagine that's going to be really tough because when you listen to administrators in, in government schools, when you police departments and all the places where this money goes, they all tell you the same thing. We're already low on funds. So when that money comes in, it's going to be hard. But you're right. But that's what we got to do. That's all for our show today, folks. Remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news and join us again tomorrow.